Hello, dear listeners. This is Christopher Brick, and thanks for joining us for the Q&A round with Andrew Marion of the University of Mississippi. Andrew's talk that we published last week on post-war humanitarian capitalism and the resettlement in the U.S. of displaced persons after World War II exemplified for me, certainly, and hopefully for some of you a little bit of how it is that great history work can rise to the needs of the moment. The Q&A had some really great moments as well. Do enjoy. Okay, Andrew Marion, welcome to the Intervals Thank you. Thank podcast. You. I'm glad to be here. Andrew Marion is a PhD candidate at the University of Mississippi. And as always, I'm joined today by my fearless colleague, co-host, co-pilot in this adventure, Professor Carrie-Anne Yakota of the University of Colorado at Denver. Welcome, Hi, Professor Yakota. Glad to be here again. Looking forward to our conversation. So, Andrew, welcome to Intervals. Um, we're very glad to have you as our guest today, and we've all listened to your lecture, and we were hoping that you can start us off by sharing something about how you came to your um, topic. So give us a little bit of your intellectual autobiography and explain to us how you came to study what you do. Thank you. I think that's a, a great question. And like I, I know many of kind of my colleagues at the University of Mississippi in the graduate department, I came to this topic by diving into the archives, particularly at the University of Mississippi. So I was in a research seminar course um, as part of my graduate studies uh, led by Dr. Ted Ownby. And in that class, we did a kind of group project researching civil rights activism in Natchez, Mississippi in the 1960s. And that led me down a rabbit hole into the James Eastland collection, which is at the University of Mississippi archives. So that uh, turned into a uh, seminar paper on POW labor in the Mississippi Delta and the way Senator Eastland helped his planner peers and constituents access POW labor during World War II and, and for a few years following. And the archivists at the University of Mississippi, when they saw me researching that project, decided to bring me a box of files. And that box of files was all of the Eastland files on displaced persons, um, all in one place, all in one box. And that set me off on this larger research project that has sent me across the country to numerous locations. But um, just you know, diving down that rabbit hole, seeing what I found, and I found something I enjoyed researching. Well, I really enjoyed that story because you mentioned the unsung heroes of the historical profession, the archivists out there. Absolutely. I hope you're listening. We have to give you thanks um, for all that you did to bring these files to Andrew, but to all of us. It's such a nice it's a relationship between historians, researchers, and archivists out there. So it's great. And it's wonderful to hear that this global project really did start at the University of Mississippi. And now I know I could see why you have these three points of reference, but everything did start in Mississippi for you. So that's very, very interesting. And I hope we can talk about that a bit more. Um, but to follow up on our first question, I wanted to um, touch upon the way in which the global or global perspectives um, 
influence your research. And um, this semester season, I was going to say this semester, because that's what I'm mm -hmm. thinking about, the beginning of our semester again. Um, but our, this season is focusing on global perspectives in um, American history. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how the global um, touched upon your research that really did start at the archives in Mississippi. Right. So I, I was thinking constantly about um, how this dilemma in the late 40s, this humanitarian crisis in Europe was affecting so much of domestic politics and really international politics and the ways in which it was intersecting with concerns about the U.S. domestic economy. As the United States reconverted from the wartime economy to this peacetime economy. And I was very much thinking about some of the, the literature that's, that's come out recently about understanding the role of the New Deal state and how that um, changed and continued to um, alter American life during the wartime experience and after, and how particularly FDR was viewing perhaps the spirit of the New Deal as a blueprint for um, international human rights, individual rights, economic rights. And then it just so happens there's this, not just so happens, obviously the war causes this humanitarian crisis where um, these displaced persons, the, um, the United States, Great Britain, Australia, are, are thinking about um, how to address these concerns while the Cold War is, is, is escalating, that tension is there. And all throughout the discussions of what to do with displaced persons, it's about America's role in the world. It's also about how America's role in the world may or may not or should or should not be dictated by the needs of the American economy or individual American businesses, farmers, states. Um, so I see it as a way that the, the United States... Um, flexes its power in the world while also trying to um, provide an example for the rest of the world of how to deal with these humanitarian crises. Um, but the United States is putting a pretty large imprint on how um, it plans to address these kinds of concerns in a, in a global perspective. So you have a lot of movers and shakers, people who are in agenda setting roles and can kind of command the attention of the country and the conversation. Um, they all get behind this through under the auspices of this uh, committee that's working on the issue. It's like the CCC citizens is committee that? for displaced persons. Right. CCDP. Thank you. Um, so the CCDP. Um, and then we get down one level below into we move past the the appearance of the law it's just its text i guess we say and then look at the regulatory policy that's undergirding it and you start picking apart well there's this cumbersome visa process well there's this sponsorship requirement well it's tied to 1924 era you know racist immigration quotas and and, and the like so you put all that together now you've really complicated my understanding of the law that superficially, at least, you know, looks quite thoughtful and progressive and, and inclusive and humanitarian. Um, and then 
you go, you bring us down even a level further than that to like as applied on the ground in specific places, you bring in this character, Colonel Calicott, who just sounds completely odious. And, um, you know, and the way that even in the late 1940s, um, in theory, you know, fascism has just been vanquished, but he's very intentionally using this program and the regulatory controls it gave his him and his position um, uh, to reinscribe essentially, you know, patterns of enslavement and patterns of sharecropping um, uh, that organizational system. One thing I noticed in the in the literature as I was you know, preparing the prospectus, trying to learn as much as I can about what's already been done on this topic, is that a lot of the focus or a significant portion of the focus is on Mississippi and Colonel Calicott and the ways in which the exploitation of the displaced persons um, was an attempt to strengthen Jim Crow, strengthen sharecropping, and to insulate or protect those white Southern planters from any potential intervention, whether from the federal government or labor unions, in their way of life, their political structure that gave them power or what or or that they took power from. And and I thought some of the other works would would mention briefly what happened in in California or throughout the country and i didn't want to fall into that trip that trap of the myth of southern exceptionalism and i i thought hmm, I, I need to examine what's going on throughout the country to see is it's what is to to, to answer the question is is what's happening or what happened in Mississippi and Louisiana exceptional or um, different in how other Americans viewed this program and the ways in which they would exploit displaced persons? There are, there are obviously some contextual uh, differences, um, but I would argue that what occurred in California or the attempts to exploit these large numbers of, of displaced men in particular to replace these Mexican migrant workers is functioning similarly as in the South, in the sense that it's about um, decreasing a need on their part to rely on people of color for labor, to build a white or perceived white workforce and to kind of create an exploitable labor force that would insulate them or protect them from intervention in their operations. And that happened in California, that happened in Minnesota, throughout the Midwest, farms throughout the, the Plain states. And it, it just kind of continuously gave me more questions to examine about how that works on, on gender lines, for example. Um, in the, the Mississippi and Louisiana examples, Colonel Calicott, as part of his contract, garnished a percentage of wages earned off the Calicott property, which particularly targeted the wages of women, displaced women. Sponsors um, asked um, voluntary agencies or the Federal Displaced Persons Commission specifically to um, give them information on resettling women to perform care work, domestic work, 
um, with little information on whether or not those displaced women would receive wages other than housing. Um, and there were even some few, relatively speaking, examples of young American men, um, some of them veterans, who wanted to use the program to resettle women that they would intend to marry, women they did not know prior to the resettlement process. So a few examples of, of young men writing to these voluntary agencies with, with letters about their, their description of an ideal spouse, um, all things from what they'd be willing to do for the family or even their physical characteristics. Um, so it's, I, I'm seeing these stories, you know, throughout the country outside the South where they're kind of almost elaborate attempts to exploit these displaced persons all for, you know, the benefit of these individual sponsors. Could I ask just brief follow-up to that? Thank you. What, what did, what sources did you need to get to, to reach those voices? Because you clearly had to dig a few levels, you know, down into the weeds. And that's not easy to do when you're also dealing with big collections. So like, how did the, you get the there? The motivations of the American sponsors? That and to the experience of, of the people who were so exploited by them. The, um, the federal files from the Displaced Persons Commission had um, plenty of complaints that were sent to them from voluntary agencies and their the officers of those organizations or volunteers who would communicate directly with the displaced and they would file those complaints with the federal displaced persons commission there also were, were quite a lot of, of files at the university of, of minnesota at twin cities um, in minneapolis and the immigration history research center archives um, I spent quite a bit of time there. They were um, generous with their their time and also some some funding so that I could visit a second time. And their archives in particular has um, or they hold the the files of different voluntary agencies, in particular the United Ukrainian American Relief Committee. Now, the United Ukrainian American Relief Committee, the the president of that organization at the time, Walter Gallen. G-A-L-L-A-N. I'm not entirely sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but he sent letters to every state, major employers, um, institutes of higher learning, asking and, and promoting um, the Displaced Persons Program. And individual sponsors often would write directly to the United Ukrainian American Relief Committee. So I have all of, I've been able to, you know, look at all of these kind of letters to these voluntary agencies with the individual sponsors kind of motivations and the ways in which they would um, essentially exploit or use these displaced persons. Um, I will say that it is a challenge um, in the sources to find direct accounts from the displaced persons that don't kind of filter through those voluntary agencies. So for example, is some of those accounts from Mississippi and Louisiana are some of the more detailed ones I have because those voluntary agencies had kind of boots on the ground or people investigating on those individual um, sugar plantations or cotton plantations. Um, but 
I, when I when I find them, obviously I flag those documents if, it, if it's coming directly from a, a displaced person, and um, it's always the good find in the archives. So, Andrew, can I ask you to fill in the picture for us and the listeners a bit more about who you're talking about when you're talking about displaced persons in your lecture? Um, what struck me as a person who does ethnic studies, Asian American studies, and immigration and ethnic history, um, I I saw all of these confluences or these areas of intersection between your lecture and the things that I'm studying and teaching. So you see some um, similarities, uh, for instance, um, the recruitment of single male laborers at the prime of their working lives, um, like in the Chinese case with the railroad workers, for instance, they came as, as males. Um, and then you see differences because you you're talking about how displaced persons are used kind of against uh, racial minorities, right? Or are used as an alternative. So just fill in for us, um, who are we talking about? You mentioned the Ukrainian example, um, but who else are we um, thinking about? Where are they coming from? And we'll follow up on the Ukrainian example, I, I hope later in the in the Q&A, but tell us who else. Um, you talked also about survivors of the Holocaust, so I'd like to know who we're talking about when we're thinking about the people that are going to Mississippi or California and Minnesota. Great question. So of the, the, the roughly 395,000 who were admitted as part of the program, um, 34% um, were Polish. Now, the way they collected the data is they included Ukrainian displaced persons in their count for Polish displaced persons. Um, the next largest group would have been Latvian displaced persons at around 15%. And then the next largest group, around 14%, um, the records indicate that they were German. Um, now, more broadly, we're, we're talking about um, these Baltic nations, these Eastern European nations. And um, like you mentioned, with, with survivors of the Holocaust, the displaced persons legislation, um, as multiple scholars have noted, discriminated against um, Jewish displaced persons, making it more difficult for them to um, come to the United States or gain admittance to the United States. A lot of that has to do, as these scholars have noted, uh, on the requirement that 30% of those admitted to the United States are agricultural workers. So it's been noted that, that many of the, the Jewish displaced persons were more likely to have lived in cities. And that meant that they did not have those agricultural backgrounds. So we're, we're looking more at, at Protestant um, displaced persons. Um, it also discriminated, the, the legislation also discriminated against Catholics because scholars have also noted that they were more likely to have lived in cities prior to their displacement. In many ways, the 
the demographics of those who came to the United States were dependent on the American sponsors and the voluntary agencies that helped facilitate their resettlement. So the organizations that had more funds, that had more ability to assist with the resettlement process were more likely to be able to resettle larger numbers of displaced persons. So the National Lutheran Council was pretty successful in comparison to other organizations. The United Ukrainian American Relief Committee was pretty successful in comparison to other organizations. And so that had a lot to do with it. Interestingly, in in Mississippi, for example, because they were facilitated through Colonel Calicott and the individual sponsors had probably more control um, than most sponsors throughout the country, 70% of those who came to Mississippi were Latvian and they were Lutheran. 30% were Catholic and more likely um, Polish. In Louisiana, 70% were Catholic. Around 30% were Protestant. And a lot of that is difference in differences in Louisiana has a larger Catholic population, um, especially around New Orleans and Southern Louisiana. Um, so all of those patterns that exist in the United States are almost mirrored, right, in how or reflecting how um, the displaced persons kind of arranged themselves or ended up resettling in, in the United States. Yeah, that, I mean, that's really, and you make a very good, you, you talk about um, humanitarian um, goals, and then you talk about how that works in tandem with, sometimes at odds with, um, political, economic, and cultural goals. So that's one thing that I thought you did very well and effectively in the, the lecture to say that um, you had to have both. Um, but as you were talking in your answer just now, um, you bring up the importance of religious identity. And I think that's something that I'm glad that in this season we can highlight um, the importance of global religious communities. And I was wondering if um, they played a part in um, this, in, in the political and humanitarian uh, efforts to um, settle displaced persons after the war. So, so international religious uh, governance, did they, did they work um, and work with and uh, with uh, the governments that are bringing people in? It's a great question. Um, the most obvious example that comes to my mind is the way in which um, Lutheran groups in America coordinated with, with Lutherans in Europe. Um, of course, there was a lot of, of coordination among Catholic organizations, but mm -hmm. the, the, the National Lutheran Council um, and their work in, in America and in Europe, they were able to really produce a lot of materials that would be distributed to um, churches throughout the United States. And there was kind of a, a, a global or at least transatlantic understanding 
of kind of this this Christian duty that many Lutherans around the world would kind of share in taking on the responsibility of these displaced persons. So the best example I have is, is that um, a, a Lutheran group, um, I'm, I believe affiliated with the National Lutheran Council, created a around 40-minute um, film that was both kind of dramatic and informative, something that they would show congregations. The, the way it was framed is that a, a young high school student, um, she was given an assignment in school, and the question is to write an essay on whether or not their town should take displaced persons. So um, the film shows her going throughout town and interviewing her neighbors. Uh, her first stop is at a cobbler, a shoemaker, who is they're, they're using stereotypes and and kind of uh, poorly done accents. But the shoemaker is very clearly an Italian immigrant. Mm. He does not want displaced persons in this film. He believes it will take um, resources away from his son, who's a veteran. the The student then talks to a police officer, who it's assumed. Um, by the audience, I believe that they are Irish. The police officer also does not want displaced persons in their community. She goes to the mayor's office. The mayor has huge maps of suburban development up on his wall. Um, and he questions whether or not the town has the resources to take on displaced persons. She sees someone at the grocery store and they do a very dramatic kind of um, scene where the woman in the grocery store is is putting as much canned food into her grocery cart as possible, kind of suggesting that um, she's greedy or, or gluttonous in some way. And she has the most, um, I would say, critical and harsh things to say about displaced persons, basically using discriminatory language. But then as the student is despondent, riding her bike through this uh, uh, idyllic um, small town, the music swells, she hears church bells, and she comes across her local Lutheran church, goes inside and talks with her pastor, who says that he has a film that he needs to review for the congregation. And the film is real footage of a Lutheran displaced persons camp in Europe. And the kind of a dramatic telling of a family a, a father with two young children, or, or yes, two young children. The children are being forced to help clean their common area room. And they talk about the Lutheran kind of global commitment to families like this single father who is going to have fewer opportunities for resettlement because he has these two children. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's all connected in this kind of general humanitarian Christian duty to the displaced that in some ways they are kind of building these, I assume these connections between these churches in America and these individuals in Europe um, in some pretty interesting ways. So you just gave us a sense of who these people were, where they were coming from, why they were sponsored or facilitated. Once they're entrenched in these contexts where um, you know, it's an unfamiliar environment and they're beholden to, uh, the 
the sharecropping economy or the migrant labor economy in Southern California, how do they react and how do they respond and how do they um, counter the most the common reaction is that they would leave their sponsor as soon as they could and they would move to a city. And that became such a problem for the American sponsors that um, with the 1950 amendments to the legislation, they included the good faith oath, and they started creating more of these orientation programs for displaced persons. So they, I mean, in, in Mississippi, the Calicots complained later that they helped all these displaced persons, and then the displaced persons abandoned them. And they complained about how much money they lost when they believed that it was an investment. And especially displaced persons going into the Midwest states, they would, they would leave their sponsors quickly and, and move to a major city. Um, now, many displaced persons, their, their first place of residence was in a major city. Uh, a little uh, 31,500 alone were in New York City. Um, 11,500 were in Chicago, large numbers in Cleveland. So they would move into those, those cities where they could be closer to other immigrant groups or similar immigrant groups. They could practice their culture more easily. Their language um, would be less of a problem than if they were in, say, Mississippi, for example. Um, and but um, that good faith of those orientation programs, as I kind of, I believe, illustrated with the example of the, the union and the strike in Ohio, it, it still had some rhetorical power for those displaced persons, um, which was, in some ways, I would argue, kind of a way to exploit them to um, become part of a kind of large, a growing group of of non-unionized labor. Um, so inculcating certain political ideas um, that would be amenable to their sponsors, um, even if it was not in their own self-interest. So Andrew, as this is um, a global um, a season about global history, can you try to contextualize um, what's going on around the world with displaced persons. So we, you did a deep dive to uh, in, in the American context or the United States. So I, I'd like to know, was the U.S. the biggest um, receiver of displaced persons? You mentioned Poland uh, earlier, and um, we in 2022 were reading about how much Poland has done for Ukrainian refugees um, and the displaced um, due to the um, political climate of today um, and the tragedy that they're facing. So what's what's going on um, around the globe at this time in the period that you're talking about in your lecture? So other nations were also resettling displaced persons, Australia, Canada. Um, Great Britain was, was doing what they could. They are obviously recovering from the war as well. Um, right. With, with what was happening with, with Great Britain and Truman would put, Harry Truman would put pressure on um, Prime Minister Attlee was more about the state of Israel and kind of recognizing the state of Israel. 
um, the United States and, and Truman wanted to, they wanted to make it clear that the United States would lead the world in this. And there were even some voluntary agencies that would bring up the fact that um, if you don't resettle these displaced persons, they may end up in Australia or Canada. Um, so it ends up being kind of a competition in some ways. Um, but th it was directly following the war. These displaced persons camps were controlled by the allied forces, the military. So there was kind of a uh, tension there of, of transitioning the oversight of those camps to the UNRRA. Um, and, and then thinking about the longer that those camps had people in them who would kind of have oversight of those camps. So in many ways it was, it was, it was kind of haphazard. It was chaotic, um, trying to manage all this, but Truman wanted this legislation far earlier and arguably more displaced persons would have come to the United States if it had been passed earlier, but, but other countries were beginning to also partake in the work. And, and did the records that you were working with, did they reflect the um, preferences of the people themselves? Um, did they want to stay closer to home and stay in Europe or was the United States really the goal or did they not have a say in where they went? You know, that's a really interesting question. I haven't really run across too many sources that mentioned the the preferences of the displaced. Now, certain displaced persons, depending on their own personal resources, may have been able to kind of influence that process or depending on their educational or career background and training. So, for example, displaced persons trained as engineers or um, physicians, um, academics, they could have a bit more control over their resettlement, um, and the location of their resettlement for the agricultural workers, um, far less control for, um, say that the, a single parent with children less control. It, it's, it's about finding those opportunities where they could. I'm wondering, and this goes back to something you talk about early in the talk about this role of public private partnerships, which is, I think, you know, sort of implicit in what you were describing about the kind of local Lutheran networks building out, finding sponsorship mechanisms for, I guess what it sounds like the Lutherans in Europe. And that would probably in intuitively, I would think that overlaps with some, some degree of like chain migration and probably to the extent that there were pre-existing networks in these spaces that the displaced persons in Europe could draw upon in, in reaching out and finding that anchor, uh, whether it's in Southern California or Minnesota or Mississippi. Um, it also seems to me like, like the public-private partnerships are often the place in your talk where the institutional capture that people like Colonel Calicott are able to, to gain. It often seems to me like it's the, the, in those partnership spaces where so many of their rights uh, of the displaced persons are kind of 
bartered away or given away. Um, you point out in your talk. So really, I'm asking about the, the the a is that a fair characterization? You think of 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 what you were describing, but also I wonder if I could get you just to reflect a little bit or share a little bit more about the role that those arrangements play in statecraft more broadly and in policymaking more broadly, because it seems to me that throughout the New Deal, we have a lot of examples where that was the case, you know, by establishing these, the, the private components of these public, it localized a lot of these relationships and placed them beyond a lot of the direct influence of national policymakers in a way that, that I think, you know, we have more and more and more good history work coming out and your your work is a part of this about um what the real costs of that were i think at the time that's often framed and it still is today as sensible kind of fiscal fiscally disciplined choice making or policy making because it galvanizes this public this private commitment to compound the public investment but there are also real costs to the policy outcomes we see, and they seem to fall very heavily on the people whom these policies were marketed and in theory created to benefit. Right. So I, I think your characterization of the, the public-private partnerships with displaced persons is, is absolutely correct. <laughs> and I, I think in some ways I, I see it as this federal program is created and they have to devote so much of their resources, their staffing and their funding to their operations in Europe, which limits their ability to intervene within the United States. So they're relying on these voluntary agencies or they're deferring to states. States would create their own displaced persons committees. And they're, they're trusting those state leaders or those voluntary agencies um, or individual sponsors more than they should have. Um, they see their goal as to resettle these people to America. That accomplishes the broad humanitarian goal of positioning the U.S. as the global humanitarian leader in their mind. But the weakness of the program prevents them from guaranteeing the human, individual, and economic rights of those people once they get here. So it shows a weakness of these federal programs because the sponsors and the legislators and states put the weakness into the design of the program. They want the control, and they took the control. And they increasingly leverage their control over the success of this global humanitarian project to meet their domestic needs. In doing so, mm -hmm. they violate or they restrict the economic rights of these displaced persons. And I think you mentioned Colonel Calicott. California may be the best example for how this worked. And that is because of the way in which the state committee for the resettlement of displaced persons in California functioned. Governor Earl Warren did not want that state committee to have direct intervention power to facilitate the resettlement. He wanted that advisory committee 
to advise voluntary agencies and employers on how best to resettle displaced persons so that they would not be a tax burden on Californians and so that they could hopefully plan and steer these displaced persons in a way that would benefit California's economic development. But it's more of of using this federal program to meet those states' needs. So, Andrew, if I can um, ask you to um, elaborate a bit on um, the topic that you end your lecture with. So that's the legacy of this event in this moment. So for those of us who teach immigration history, 1965 is this watershed moment. And I, I like that you built that into the lecture, the ways in which this experience influenced the future of immigration legislation in the United States. So I was wondering, I just wanted to give you a chance to talk about that and maybe talk about um, just anything that you didn't get to get to in the lecture, um, including the Ukrainian example, if you'd like. Sure. I, you know, I see the legacy of, of this program leading up to 1965 as many Americans some of these legislators um, realizing through this program that the quotas are incongruent with post-war America, post-war world. And those quotas cannot be maintained if the United States is going to position itself as a global humanitarian leader. And, you know, some of the very um, congressmen, and senators who, you know, put forward ideas to, to liberalize or open up displaced persons resettlement would continue arguing for and designing legislation leading up to 1965 that would liberalize and open up immigration policy. So, whereas I see it in the historiography is that this is a vital contingent moment to understand that change over time from 1924 to 1965. So I would argue anyone studying this change over time in immigration policy would have to look to the Displaced Persons Act or other kind of 1950s um, refugee legislation or actions as being essential building blocks toward the 1965 Act. And you, you also ask about, about Ukrainians and, and what's been happening recently. I'm a historian. I don't know the design or the prescription for what's best for these Ukrainian refugees. But what I do know is what happened um, from 1948 to 1952 and the way Americans exploited the displaced then, including Ukrainians. And earlier I was talking about how the Displaced Persons Committee was um, had the power and the resources to intervene in Europe, but they had a weakness when it was in the United States to intervene on behalf of those displaced persons. I would argue that admitting Ukrainian refugees is a humanitarian imperative, but protecting them once they arrive in the United States, giving them opportunities, assistance, protection from exploitation, 
is the other part of that promise of human rights and economic rights. And that it has to be a full promise. It can't just be a half promise of resettlement. And then here you are. Um, the United States and voluntary agencies, religious groups that are helping to resettle Ukrainian refugees needs to understand that the responsibility they have to those refugees does not end once they arrive in the United States. And then it should continue through programming and other resources until those refugees feel confident and secure with their place in the United States. Well, Andrew, thank you so much. I speak, I think, on behalf of Chris, and, and uh, we really appreciate your contribution to our um, interval season this season. And I, I know that our listeners will also appreciate your work and um, the lecture that you presented as well as a Q&A. So we will uh, thank you for that. And now just uh, let you uh, relax as we say goodbye with an easier question. So now you're off the record. We're just talking amongst ourselves <laughs> and okay. everyone else listening. <laughs> no, this is still being recorded and it will be part of the podcast, but it's an easy question in that you can maybe share with us your um, most memorable food memory as you were doing your archival research. So we've, we've appreciated your thoughtful uh, lecture and your thoughtful answer to our questions. So now you can just riff on uh, some fun memory that you have. It could be either positive or negative, but just all of us have been on the road and having meals and sharing food with new friends. So many. Um, I've been very lucky that I've been able to, to travel for my research quite a bit with the, the help of the University of Mississippi and, and other um, and other external funding, including the Truman Library, which is um, one I want to mention. I, I've had a lot of interesting uh, food, you know, being near uh, Kansas City, experiencing that barbecue there, being a lifelong Mississippian and questioning whether or not they would actually, they could claim that their barbecue was superior. I'm still on the fence about that. Um, but I also know that for some reason mm -hmm. during my trip to Independence in Missouri or to Minneapolis twice, I have experienced extreme cold weather. Um, I drove into uh, Independence and it was negative four degrees for most of the time I was there, which was about two weeks. And both of my trips to Minneapolis, one being in late April, and I my my wardrobe is very Mississippi centric, meaning I have clothes for warm weather. I'm not prepared for sub-zero temperatures in late April in Minneapolis. And the second time I went to Minneapolis, it was even colder, but it was in December, so I was more prepared. But luckily, in Minneapolis, there um, is a large uh, Ukrainian-American community, so I'm able to kind of have some of the food that I cannot really find here in Mississippi. 
Okay, and now it comes by my, my <laughs> I, I didn't know you were a life. Well, and I was gonna say we could, episode, to, we could have a whole episode. We could have a whole season on barbecue, but okay, I'll stop there. Okay, Chris, it's your turn. You go, you go. <laughs> You're absolutely right. No, I mean because you you were you yeah, I, I know that in the South that's like a whole separate, <laughs> you know, agenda that goes on with respect to barbecue and competitive regional barbecues and what kind of sauce and everything. Um, I am more, I'm more a drinks person. So I want to hear your favorite beverage story from the archives or from a research. Ooh, um, or most memorable beverage story. It doesn't have to be your, fa- it could be a bad one. I mean, I have plenty. Well, um, Hmm. Mississippi is also a little bit behind the curve on on things like having local breweries um, and because of Mississippi alcohol laws um, that have changed over time. In Minneapolis, I was surprised that they have breweries and distilleries where you can drink, um, which is interesting in itself. But, you know, I have to kind of, I think, kind of, you know, do a bit of a curveball here. I think the best thing I drank, if you could say I drank it, was in Sacramento when I was visiting the state archives. There's a place, I think it's called Gunter's. And it's kind of like snow cones and ice cream. All to, It's a famous place, my understanding. And um, I think I went three or four times and I was only there for a few days. Wow. You know, I think Carrie Ann is a Californian um, uh, by training and disposition, I think, right? And and um, I I always heard from, you know, my California friends, there's a lot of them at this point, Sacramento is dull. I had a great time. It was in, great when in, I was in Sacramento. Yeah. No, I have um, too. Yeah, I mean, I had... I had some- yeah. yeah, I don't know why. I feel like Sacramento. So, was, was there an OAH conference there? Because I remember having some great um, yes. discussions over wonderful meals and drinks at the OAH conference in Sacramento. Would, yeah. yeah. Yes. No. I mean the the Sacramento meeting. Uh, what was it? Maybe two thousand seventeen, something like that. Maybe it was twenty sixteen. Um, but I had I had a great pub crawl with some colleagues, you know, through Sacramento, it's kind of, it's kind of a college town too, sort of. So there's like these places to hang out and like burger joints and stuff. And I stayed on that, that steamboat thing that's in the river. I have family there. So I, it has a special place in my heart, but so this is a fan uh, letter to archivist Sacramento. What else? Um, Sacramento. Barbecue. Barbecue. (laughs) Barbecue. I like your idea about barbecue, you know, because when you talk about food politics, like that's like a I'm great, you. Of, you know, talk, think about that concept. Yeah, no. And I did. I dropped that to to I told Beth Marsh. I was like, that's what we were thinking. Um, Thank you, Andrew. Andrew. This was so thank you so much. And I mean, the, the yeah, I mean, I could listen. I could oh. listen to you lecture all day. Um, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. So thank you again. Um Thank you. It's great to Thank be you, here. Thank you, Yakota, as well, Professor Yakota. And that's a wrap. Next time, we'll be welcoming our sixth featured lecturer of the season. That's Matt Getz. Matt is a PhD candidate at George Washington University, and his dissertation research on the Barbary Wars of the early 19th century will form the basis for his talk. 
do please join us. We'll catch you then.